Uh, our text this morning is from 1 John 4, verses 15 through 18. You can find this on page 1023 in the Bible's place in the chairs in front of you. Let me move this over. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has nothing, no, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Watts. Always good to have our college students home. See what haircuts they've chosen. Um, <laughs> saw a college student yesterday and he had a mullet. And uh, if you don't know what that is, it's business in the front, party in the back. And uh, I said, in front of his mom, I said, hey, I like your mullet. And she got really mad at me because she does not like his mullet. So <laughs> anyway, it's good to have you this morning. Uh, if you're joining us online or in person, we're continuing our series in First John. Uh, last week, we talked about, in one word, you guys tell me. Love, yes, and how. And I said last week, let's see if we can say it 100 times. You can always depend on our middle school population for taking those things literally. Uh, after service, several middle schoolers came to me and gave me their counts, and it ranged anywhere from 172 to 181. So depending on if they counted the Lord's Supper or not. But um, we talked a lot, a lot, a lot about love. Um, and uh, I was actually thinking this week as I was beginning to study this passage, um, man, uh, John's still talking about love. Um, and I don't know if you're experiencing this. I'm experiencing this, this a little bit, studying a little bit of love fatigue. And I was actually talking about this with an elder this week at lunch, saying, man, you know, as we talk about love, uh, I, it, is it something that we're talking too much about? And I hope people are still listening. Uh, and he made the point that, first of all, we should always trust that God knows what we need to hear. God knows what we need to hear. And we also talked about how this is the perfect image of God's relentless love. Even when we're tired of hearing about it, God still loves us. And so we, we have this inability to hear about how much God loves us because he's still going on about it. Why? Because he loves us that much. We don't have the ability to soak it all in without feeling completely saturated. And so, what have we learned so far? Let's review. Jesus is truth. We heard about that a couple weeks ago. We learned for the last several weeks, God is love. In this passage, John is saying, so what? There's got to be an application of this divine love. And so, um, that's what we're talking about this morning. Let me just quickly talk about Advent for a moment. I, I love Advent, and I was thinking this week, why do I have uh, such an affinity towards it? And I honestly think it's because I love Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, and if you've read any of Bonhoeffer's stuff, he explains Advent with such passion and he understands the waiting for our salvation in such a way, it's just, it's beautiful. And, 
And Bonhoeffer, specifically, even before this, uh, his whole ministry, he explained Advent and, and what it means for us very well. But then he spent his last few years of life in a Nazi prison camp. And, and it wasn't something that discouraged him. It, in fact, enhanced his view of Advent, uh, waiting in a prison for someone to unlock him from it. And so um, uh, I think that's where I get it. Uh, in one of his sermons to a church in London, it was a German church that he pastored. This is before his time uh, in a Nazi camp. He was explaining Advent, and he uh, apparently in their town, a miner had been trapped uh, in, a, in a collapsed mine, and he used this as an illustration, and he said this, um, talking about how life sometimes can feel like we're trapped in a mine, no sound, darkness, claustrophobic, and kind of com uh, connecting that to the fact that we feel sh fear and shame and loss in this life, he says uh, that we are currently in an agonizing period of waiting and dying, and it's all that remains. So if we think about this life as we wait for what comes next, it's not pleasant at times. It's a very vivid, none of us here I don't think, except maybe Ethan, have been trapped in a mine, uh, but we can put ourselves there. We can, we can sense what it would be like to be in complete darkness and with no hope. But then he goes on to say this, but suddenly a noise that sounds like tapping and breaking in the rock can be heard. Unexpectedly, voices cry out, where are you? Help is on the way. Then the disheartened miner picks himself up, his heart leaps, he shouts, here I am, come on through and help me. I'll hold out until you come, just come soon. A final desperate hammer blow to his ear, now the rescue is near, just one more step and he is free. And Bonhoeffer says, we have spoken of Advent itself. That is how it is with the coming of Christ, look up, Raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. I couldn't say it better myself. That's what Advent is. We are stuck in this life surrounded by a claustrophobic, dark world that seems like it's crumbled in all around us. But here we have something that we know is happening. Christ has broken through. We're waiting for his second coming as we celebrate his first. And so as life gives us fear and shame and loss, which it does and it will and it will continue to, the certainty of Jesus Christ gives us confidence and courage as we approach eternity. And so this passage really connects very well to Advent. This passage from 1 John 4 connects very well. It's a reminder that we have so much, so much to look forward to in the second Advent of Christ. When Jesus comes again and we say, come Lord Jesus, there's so much there for us. Eternity of, of no sin, no brokenness. And, and the only reason we can have confidence and hope in that second Advent is the first one. That Jesus Christ came and did what he did and the fact that it's done already. So we pray for us and we'll jump into the text and see what John has to say to us in this first Sunday on Advent. Lord, thank you for those that are here. I pray for myself, I pray for us, that you would release me from my own sin this morning, any distractions. I pray that you would release us from the lies that we believe about our lives, that we're trapped in the awfulness that sometimes occurs. Let us this morning have certainty, let us have confidence, and Lord, let us approach Advent this year with courage. Pray these things in the name of Jesus, amen. 
And so John here in this passage, he's pointing out the fact that we live between the two advents. He's not using that language, but he is pointing very certainly back to when Jesus Christ came in the flesh. That's what he's been talking about. Remember the problem in this church was Gnosticism. They were saying that no, Jesus never really came in the flesh. So John's big point here is no, Jesus actually came. And he's pointing us to something in the future, the second advent. And so while advent for us is a time of waiting, according to John here, it's also a time of certainty. Look at verse 15. This is kind of review here. He says in verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So with all these issues related to the deity and humanity of Christ, John, again, if you go back, if you want to remind yourself the last several sermons, Jesus is the, the, the foundation of truth. And not just the concept of Jesus, but Jesus coming in the flesh. That is the truest of all truths. And God is love. And so Jesus in the flesh is true love. And, the, and what he's saying here in verse 15 is this is a supernatural realization. It's a response to something that God has done. You see here at the end of the verse, God abides in him and he in God. Uh, some, several of the scholars that I was reading this week uh, called this mutual indwelling. And they called it a beautiful mystery. We cannot confess that Jesus is Lord without being in God. And we can't be in God unless he is in us. You see how that can, can really kind of mess with our minds. And if we try and nail it down, we'll probably blow our minds. And so what we have to see this is only by the power of the Spirit can we confess that Jesus is God. And only by the indwelling of God can one dwell in God. All right, there's just, it's a circular thing. But this is something that happens. God moves into our hearts first. First. Our souls are dead in sin and God moves in. And what does he do? He brings us back to life first. And in that regenerated new view that we have of life, God invites us into relationship and in regenerated faith, we say, yes, I believe. It's not something we've pulled up our bootstraps to do ourselves. God does it in us and for us. That's regeneration. That's God's love. He acted first. And so the coming of Jesus, again, this is review. In the flesh is true truth, and it's a truth that we can rely on. Look at verse 16. And so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. John here in verse 16 is pointing to the advent of Christ, the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh as a baby, as proof for God's love. So we have come to know God's love. How? Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. That's how we know. It's proof. So when we say to God, show me that you love me, he says, Christmas. Christmas. And so by seeing Jesus come to earth, we know in our heads that God loves us. So everybody here, Christian or non-Christian, everybody listening online, Christian or non-Christian, guess what? We now know that there's this person, this deity called God, and guess what? He loves you. For God so loved the world. God loves you. God has love for you. How do we know? He sent Jesus. That happened. But John goes a little deeper than that. He says, it's not just how we know, it's how we believe. And this comes back to that mutual indwelling. You can see he kind of rephrases it. The love that God has for us, we're believing that. God is love. 
Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. That's that mutual indwelling, that regenerative relationship. And so because Jesus Christ came to earth, yes, we can know. Factually, God loves us. But because Jesus came to earth and he died for our sins and he rose again and he ascended and he sent the Holy Spirit, because of that event and the Holy Spirit living in us, Christians, we can actually believe that God loves us. We don't have to deny it. We don't have to second guess it. As we look at the first advent of Jesus, it's all that we need to know to believe that God loves us. So Christmas is proof that God is near and that God loves us. And so we have this certainty, this certainty we've been talking about for weeks, we won't belabor it, that Jesus is God, that he came in the flesh. This is something that we can be certain about in Advent. That certainty, according to John, brings about a confidence. Look at verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us. So let's pause there just for a moment. So our abiding with God, right? We've been talking about this as we spend time with our Father, as we are in his word and we pray and we're together in fellowship, as we abide in that relationship, certainly it makes us more loving. That, that happens. But that's not what we're talking about here. This, this perfection of love is not about performance. Let's talk about what it is. We have this tendency to think that the word perfect has to do with performance. And so what John is saying here is that perfect love was manifested, was made clear when Jesus Christ came into the world. Not by necessarily his whole life or what he did. And so it can't be about performance. This word here in the text actually means completion. Completion. And so we're not talking about the performance of love. Now, certainly God performs his love perfectly because he is love and he's perfect. But what we're talking about here is that when Jesus Christ came to earth, God's full, complete, whole love was put on display. There's nothing else that he could reveal beyond it. There's not, there's not another message that we're waiting for. When Jesus Christ came, it was the full picture of how much God loved us, how much he does love us. And so Jesus in the manger is the fulfillment of God's loving plan to save his people. And so that idea that, that, that we have the proof of God's love and that we can be certain that Jesus Christ is who he is, it should give us confidence. Look at the rest of verse 17. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. The advent of Christ gives us a show of God's complete love. It results in complete confidence in our future. Do you see? Do you see this? We have confidence in this world, even though it feels like it's caved in all around us sometimes because of who Jesus is and what he did, the fact that he came into this world and he's told us, I've overcome the world and so shall you overcome the world. This gives us confidence now, but honestly, it gives us a confidence for later. And if we think about it, church, Christmas is actually a holiday of judgment. <laughs> holiday of judgment. That, that could make us nervous, 
But notice that, that what, what, he, what John is saying here is that our confidence doesn't come from our behavior. Think about Santa Claus for a moment, okay? Parents, don't sweat. I won't ruin anything. Um, Santa Claus, what's the idea behind Santa Claus? That he is waiting for you to do good. And when you do good, then you'll get. That's not how God works. Praise the Lord. I think John Piper, my friend, calls him the big wet blanket because he says, thank goodness that, that, that I don't worship Santa Claus because that's a hard God to worship. We worship a God who loves us anyway, even though our stockings deserve to be filled with what? Coal, big time, this guy. But notice where our confidence comes from, not from our behavior. Not from our behavior. It's not an issue of our performance to God or our ability to love him well. That's not in this passage at all. Confidence comes from the fact that salvation belongs to God. Our confidence comes from the fact that, that God gave us that salvation for free in his son. God gifted us Jesus Christ. And so we're not waiting for something. It's been given. We've received it already. And so confidence, the fulfillment of God's love at the first advent, it gives us confidence for the second one. It gives us confidence for the second one. But John doesn't want us just to live, uh, excuse me, just to have confidence. Like, oh good, I'm good to go. I can just rest. No, he wants us to act and live in confidence. In fact, he wants us to take courage. Look at verse 18. So let's review. Jesus Christ has come. It's a fact. John's been talking about this for the last few weeks in our sermons. This gives us a certainty. We know that it's happened. We know what it means. In that certainty, we can have confidence. And in that confidence, we can live a life without fear. Look at verse 18. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Let's just backtrack for just one moment and talk about where fear comes from. Back to creation. Okay, so we talked about creation with the kids this morning. God created the world. Why? To invite us into a relationship with him. That's why he did it. He was complete in the Trinity, but he wanted to be with us. So he created the world, he put us in it, and he had a relationship with us. And then we all know what happened, or maybe we don't. Adam and Eve decided, nah, I think I'll do something else. I think we'll do our own thing. And then there's this moment right after they do their own thing where God comes back to the garden to have the relationship. And here's what happens. Genesis 3.10, we're the very beginning of our Bibles. And Adam said, I, God says, Adam, where are you? As if he doesn't know. And Adam responds, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. This is the first time fear ever shows up in the story. Why is Adam afraid? Because he had this relationship with God and it was great and it was good and there was no shame and no fear. And he, he and Eve said, no, what we don't want it. And now on his shoulders are the consequences of his sin. Adam has no mediator. There's no one to speak up for Adam, but Adam. And so rightly so, Adam in the garden facing God should have a lot of fear. Why? His sin. Fear comes from, it's born out of our separation from God in our sins. 
It's where it comes from. And so this, much like that miner before the tapping of the hammer, Adam's fear is our fear if we don't have a savior. The weight of our sins are on our shoulder, whether we know it or not. We know that without a savior outside of us, we cannot find a way to escape pain in this world. Impossible. We can't make wrong right. It's impossible. Even if we have done something wrong and we're very, very sorry, it doesn't always seem right after you try to make it right. We can't control others to do what we wish they would do. Because if they just would do what we do, the world would be just fine, right? We can't, listen, this is for me, we cannot control the outcomes of any aspect of our lives. That's sad news for me. We're caved in all around by sin and brokenness. And that, I mean, honestly, if we're, if we're honest about that, that's truly fearful, I, that we should be afraid of that. But verse 18 reminds us of the certainty of Christ and the confidence we have from it. In verse 18 it says, there is no fear in love. There's no fear in love. Perfect love cast out fear. Remember, this is not a performance perfect, this is a complete perfect. The love that we have from God tells us how the story ends. It tells us how the story ends. And so, knowing how it ends and knowing what God has done already and what he's going to do and the promises that he gives, there's no room for fear in that story with us in Jesus Christ. Nothing can crush us. Nothing can hold us back. Nothing can, can be laid on our shoulders as far as punishment. And, and John says that for fear has to do with punishment. There is no punishment. Jesus Christ was punished for us. So in this Advent time, listen, we've received the perfect gift of love. The perfect, complete gift of love. The only gift that can, we can be truly sure of. Even the electronics we get in a few weeks might break, okay? You can't be sure of them. You can't be sure that they're gonna satisfy. Jesus Christ is the only certainty that can give us real confidence. It's the only confidence that can give us that divine Courage, famous verse, 2 Timothy 1.7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So Advent, church, I believe is a great time to take courage. Perfect love casts out fear. That phrase or that word cast out means to drive out or throw out. And so, what can we take courage in? How can we have courage? Be reminded, and how could you not be when your pastor says it 181 times in one sermon, have courage in the fact that God loves you. He loves you. We don't have to fear God's wrath. Jesus came in a quiet whisper. Jesus completed the plan of love set before time through his birth his life, his death, his resurrection, he did it all. He did the heavy lifting. So we have nothing to fear from God. He's our Father, our loving Father, who waits expectantly for us 
every minute of every day. And so we can live and love courageously as his children. So Advent becomes this time, this perfect time to focus not only on that sweet baby in a manger, not only in God breaking through the darkness, but it's a great time, a perfect time to remember that God loves us. I know I'm repetitive. I know John's repetitive, but it's what God wants us to hear this morning. God loves us. And so what do we use our courage for? I think this is what John is getting at. There's nothing in here that he's asking us to do. <laughs> and I love those passages because we tend to, as, as, as performance people, to be like, okay, encourage, I'll go do it, tell me what to do. Here's what the courage is to be used for in this passage. He's, he's pointing at something very specific, very personal. He isn't asking us to save the world or give away all our stuff. He wants us to use our courage to believe that God loves us. <laughs> you probably guessed it. That's where it's at. So we have this certainty of Jesus Christ. We know who he is. That should give us confidence in, in what he did and what's going to happen. And in, the, in between the first and the second advent, we can have courage to just believe that God actually loves us the way he says. So this Advent, as we think about the Christmas story, as beautiful as it is, what God did in a poor little town to a poor couple of teenagers, what he revealed to a bunch of stinky shepherds, right? All these things, what do they reveal? That God came in the flesh to show us the complete proof of how much he loves us. So this morning... As we approach the Lord's table, I want us to um, consider God in the manger. In fact, Advent is a great context for the Lord's Supper because before us here in the bread and the wine or the juice, it's another reminder of the proof that God's already given us. I think back to the Pharisees, after Jesus would do this miracle, they'd say, show us a sign, right? Uh, and I always think Jesus would be like, do you see what I just did, right? Um, here we are. God in his kindness and his graciousness towards us is showing us another sign, reminding us of the thing he's already done. And so in his relentless, complete love, he certainly calls us to love others. He certainly calls us to obey his word. But this is an invitation this morning as we eat the bread and drink the cup simply to be loved. That's what it is. So as you traverse the aisle this morning, the only people that come forward are those who are broken sinners that know they need Jesus, that have made that profession of faith, that have been baptized. And as you come forward, it's not something you're doing for God. It's something he's actually doing for you. Think of it as a hug for your heart. My prayer is that if you need that this morning, this can be that. For those of you that do not believe that Jesus Christ did any of these things or that he is who he says he is, or you have a sin in your life and you're saying, nah, I like it too much. I'm not going to get rid of that. Uh, the Bible makes it clear this is not the time or the place for you to come and receive. And so we'd encourage you not to do that. Let me ask us to just take a few moments of silent prayer to ask the Lord 
to bless this time for us, and then I'll gather us back together with a prayer of blessing, and then we'll move forward with celebrating the Lord's Supper as a family.